I'm Jeff Gould, and this is I Like That Story, a different podcast. This is the serialized podcast of a crime novel I wrote a number of years ago called Dead Air, under my pen name, J.J. Gould. So uh, we are in episode number five. If you are joining this for the first time, you can go back and find episode number one and catch up with us later. If not, we will stay tuned till after the program again today and give you a few more program notes. Again, this is the podcast Dead Air. In the dying town of Dancing, South Dakota, salvation comes in the form of a rich retired basketball player who promises to build a gaming casino and hunter's paradise. The only person suspicious of his motives is a down-and-out reporter from the local radio station, and the only evidence he has is a garbled message recorded by accident by a scared and desperate heiress. Episode number five, A Complete Fall. Chapter 21, Marjorie. Marjorie DeWalt was 55 but looked 70. From the frown lines deeply creasing her face, she looked like a third-world refugee who had faced enormous hardship. That was far from the truth, but it did not prevent her feeling downtrodden anyway. Somewhere along the line, she decided that people, excluding her, were just no damn good. That included her husband, a mild-mannered banker who married her before the frown lines showed up and gave her an instant ticket to upward mobility a ticket she immediately grabbed and almost as immediately disdained him for. She owned about 30 rental properties in dancing and was amazed at the destructive tendencies and larcenous hearts of the people who lived in them. About three times a week she would receive some kind of complaint about a leaky roof or a broken toilet or a faulty heater. Those were called into her answering machine and promptly ignored. Eventually, tenants would learn to put a bucket under the leak or wear an extra sweater or use the bathroom at the 7-Eleven. What did they expect for the meager rent they paid? The Taj Mahal? And presently, she had to meet with Stanley Martin, that troublemaking announcer from the radio station. No doubt he would want some of his deposit back as well. Having dealt with that kind of people before, Marjorie knew how tenants would hide damage just before an inspection, so many times a month she would stop by unannounced when the tenants weren't around to see what she could see. This blatant abuse of privacy was her best way to find damage as it happened and to snoop around in other people's lives looking for dirt. Stanley Martin was an alcoholic, something she was delighted to discover. On and about the first and fifteenth of each month, payday, she figured. She would find an empty bottle of vodka in his wastebasket. Cheap stuff. Other than that, he was the perfect tenant. His possessions were limited. A few sets of clothes, a small TV and radio, and one plate and one fork and one saucepan, all three of which were dirty in the sink whenever she happened by. Having a messy kitchen was hard when all he had was only three kitchen utensils, and when his diet consisted of what appeared to be dinty more stew or TV dinners. The oven didn't get dirty either. In fact, he even seemed to clean the place every week or so. Over the two years he had lived there, the bathroom had become less and less grimy, and once he had even painted, a fact that outraged her in a way that she could not quite understand. She knocked on his door at exactly 11 a.m., and he opened the door. Good morning, Mrs. DeWalt. 
His manners were perfect, and in truth he was rather handsome for a poor man, but his eyes gave him away. There was a slight world-wise cast to them, and a bottomless understanding that he knew who she was and what she would do today. She stepped into the apartment and covered her unexpected unease with a brusque demeanor. <clears throat> well, uh, there's no beating around the bush. No doubt you'll want to break your rental agreement, and with no chance of me filling the lease on short notice, I might add, and now you want me to inspect things before you leave. Yes, I suppose it's been quite some time since you've been in here. His voice was deep and soft and ever so gently sarcastic. Infuriating. The inspection took forty-five minutes. Those things usually took longer, sometimes up to two hours, while she gleefully exposed the shocking damage to sheepish tenants. But not that time. Stan had produced a detailed inspection of his own, which he had made at the time of his initial deposit. She had forgotten about that. On that neatly folded document was listed all the damages noted at that time, along with her initials estimating when those repairs would be done. None of the repairs had been made. To make matters worse, he had added a clause at the end of the paperwork stating that he could initiate cosmetic repairs, in other words, painting, as long as he didn't change the color of the apartment. She had forgotten about that, too. And she had forgotten that she signed it. Her eyes blazed with rage. Well, Mr. Martin, I imagine you think you are entitled to a return of your deposit. I do. Well, I can't say I agree. But as a favor to you and to prove I'm on the up-and-up, I will hire an inspector at my own expense to mediate. If you leave me a forwarding address, I will make sure I send you any deposit due. He looked at her with eyes that changed slowly to ice. She wanted to look away, but found she couldn't. Has this ever resulted in a return of deposit in the past? She shifted uncomfortably, color rising up her neck to her cheeks. I can't tell you the exact times, dates, and deposits of every tenant I've had. His eyes changed again. This time his features shifted to one of thinly veiled disdain. I don't think you'll be needing my new address. Goodbye, Mrs. DeWalt. He pointed toward the door. Her hands were shaking with rage when she got to her car. Kicked out of my own property! Her face was clenched in a mask of fury. She kicked the side of her Cadillac and then kicked it again. How dare he call her integrity into question! She gunned out of the parking lot, nearly hitting a kid on a bicycle. Stupid brat! Later, when she cooled down a bit, she dropped her car off at the dealership to have the body shop fix the tiny crescent-shaped dents her high heels had made in the door panel. The bill came to $235, which made her mad all over again. That had been the amount of Stanley Martin McGarvey's deposit. Chapter 22. Stan. $311 plus some change. It made a pathetically small roll of bills in his pocket. 
He needed enough to get out of town, enough to get the shark fixed, enough to buy some food, and maybe enough to fix his shoes. He thought about the liquor store downtown, but pushed the thought away. First things first. The last day of March was remarkably pleasant weather-wise. The ever-present wind was just a soft breeze, and the smell of mud and grass meant that some day spring would come. And after a long winter, the sixty-degree sunshine felt almost hot. The Amico station was about a half a mile away, and by the time he got there, a few beads of sweat had collected on Stan's brow, and he was carrying his coat over one arm. Crazy weather. Lauren Krenz had called him a few days before to tell him the shark was done, but he did not have the money to pick it up then. He was going to have to wait till Friday, payday, but Happy Jack had had Lorna give him his severance check right away. Two, actually. The second came after Stan mentioned to Happy Jack that he had ten vacation days saved up, and after looking at him steadily for a few long moments, Happy Jack suddenly became magnanimous and had Lorna cut the other check for vacation pay. Lauren was in the back of the station by the lift. He was underneath the rusted-out cutlass, poking at it glumly. All the jocks had their cars serviced at Lauren's because he was cheap and soft-hearted. The cutlass belonged to Eddie. Eddie's last name was Polish and unpronounceable. His air name was Eddie Dangerous, a ridiculous name that Eddie had come up with himself and in no way described him. He worked from 6 p.m. to 1 in the morning, the bottom rung of the ladder, so everyone just called him Eddie, or the new guy, or the Nug, if he had done something especially stupid. Nug stood for new, useless guy. Look at this. Lauren motioned Stan over to him as though they were continuing a conversation. 198,000 miles on it. Doesn't use a drop of oil, but this. He poked again, and a shower of rust fell. His cancer's gonna kill it. Too damn bad. These cutlasses sure are runners. That was Lauren's weakness. He loved every car he saw. He loved Eddie's cutlass. He loved the peeling green LTD Larry Carl drove, but he especially loved the shark. The shark was Stan's car, a 1970 Chrysler 300. It was dark, dull gray, almost black. It had looked menacing ten years before when Stan saw it in a used car lot. He wasn't the type of person who usually named cars, but he called it the shark before he signed the papers, and the shark it remained. Before the fall, Stan had taken meticulous care of it, or rather had others take care of it. He wasn't one for fuzzy dice or that sort of thing, but he kept it sterile on the inside and spotless on the outside. When he had money, he would bring it in monthly, fussing about some small noise. Since the move to dancing, however, the shark, like everything else Stan owned, just had to make the best of it. When it started blowing steam a few weeks before, he had no idea what to do, but drove it three miles over to Lauren's Amico, something that made Lauren quite upset at the time. By the time he was done lecturing Stan, Stan felt as though he had been caught beating a small child. Anyway, there it sat now, and the time had come to find out how bad the news was. Well, I guess you're going to need the shark. Everyone called it the shark, Lauren included. The news of Stan's firing was also everywhere. Yes. Stan didn't really want to talk about it. Neither did Lauren especially. Outside of cars, Lauren had few interests. 
He scratched at his beard, which began somewhere below his neck and ended just beneath his dirt-flecked glasses. Blown radiator, and all the hoses are pretty mushy, too. Some of the belts are cracked and your back tires are getting worn. Some play in the steering that needed fixing, and your rear seal is dripping a tad. Stan's spirits sank with each diagnosis. I know you need to get out of town, but I didn't want you breaking down on the way. How much? Lawrence scratched his beard again and shifted. Uh, forty dollars. Stan stared. Forty dollars? Lauren looked away as though embarrassed. Yeah, well, I took a little solder for the radiator, and I got some coolant from an aluminum block engine I had to change out, but still should work in yours. I had a wrecked car with the same tires. I swapped those out. Lauren continued ticking off all the ways he fixed cars on a shoestring. When he presented the bill, the parts added up to $14, and the rest was labor. Stan did not know what to say. Um, th thanks. The word seemed totally inadequate. Lauren shrugged, scratched his beard again. Then he looked at Stan defiantly. Now, the truth is, I never did like that Dormeyer fellow on the TV. Thought he played dirty. Chapter 23. Reese. Reese found it remarkably easy. All he had to do was to go see the prospective places and look enthusiastic. Ranches outside of town, buildings in town, run down, spruced up, it didn't matter. He would just nod, cock his head to one side, and write some notes in a notebook that he would never read again. Sometimes he said, wow, if he was shown a view of some flat land that was supposed to be beautiful. Other times he would deliberately misinterpret some price by a factor of ten, much to the delight of the prospective seller, and say, that seems reasonable. By then the word had gotten around dancing that either the rich basketball guy and his pals were visionaries, or they were suckers, but if the money was good, nobody cared. He even hopped in the sack with a more than willing wife of the guy who owned the lumber yard. The husband was out, and she was showing their house which neighbored the lumber yard. Her husband was not around, she said, standing close, but she was a partner in the business and was able to negotiate the value, and Reese could get a much better view of the property from the bedroom window. He grinned one of his grins, and that was it. Easy. By the time he made it back to the hotel where the party was, the whole town was waving at him when he walked by. He grinned. Easy. Chapter 24 Stan Hard to say about this town. No matter what he thought, or what he thought might happen, it had a way of shifting that he really couldn't predict. He was driving the shark through town, enjoying the sensation of driving again, window down, fresh air blowing in, listening to the rumble of the 440 V8. Stan was thinking about Lauren, wondering what made some people good and some bad, but mostly thinking about whether he could afford it. Money had a way of running low, and he would need gas money to get out of town, and enough for at least two weeks of thinking time to decide what else he should do with his life. He had just over a hundred and seventy bucks. He should probably ration it out, but thought about maybe eating a real meal 
at Jean's. Jean's was the best restaurant in town. They specialized in three things, big steaks, enormous steaks, and impossibly large steaks that lapped over the plate's edges. All were served with a small wedge of lettuce, if you cared for that sort of thing, and a fork. Jean's motto was, if you need a knife, it's too tough. Patrons had no trouble discerning where they got their beef from because the cattle stood in blissful ignorance in a feedlot outside the back window. A saying goes, if you want good seafood, eat by the ocean. Well, the opposite is also true. The best steak in the world is not found in New York or San Francisco or London. It's found in a small place off the beaten path next to some cattle in some flat spot in the middle of the country. Jeans was open, but so was the liquor store. So Stan drove there instead. Chapter 25. Dormeyer Dormeyer had settled into the task. The panic of the morning had faded, and he wondered what he had even been worried about. People see what they want to see, and it became obvious, painfully obvious, that they wanted to see a multi-million dollar casino. The crowd was gathering for free hors d'oeuvres at the bar. Dormeyer's crisp stack of cash was being handed out freely, and locals stared at the newly minted hundreds greedily. News got around that free kegs were also set up, and people started showing up, crowding around, wanting to be close to the famous player and closer to his free food. Many had brought sheets of paper for him to sign. Word had gotten around about the size of his hands. Dormeyer would lay his hand on a regular sheet of 8 by 11 paper, and it would lap over all the edges. Then he would trace around the hand and sign and date it. It was impressive. The day was pretty nice. The damn wind had died down and the sun was shining, so a little of the crowd had spilled out of the bar onto a patio by the street. As the sun set, what seemed like the whole town came to celebrate the start of something big. The crowning touch came when Reese elbowed him a little and pointed. Dormeyer looked over and saw him. The reporter guy from the radio station was coming out of a liquor store across the street with a bottle in a bag. Bobby whistled at him. When the reporter looked up, Reese laughed and raised an imaginary bottle to his mouth. The guy stopped. What was his name? Stu? Anyway, he just stood there. It was so funny. He had heard the guy had gotten fired, so he was probably going to booze it up, drown his sorrows, serve the little weasel right. He laughed with Bobby. Ha! <laughs> What a loser! Chapter 26 Claire Claire sighed into the aches and pains of a long day, home at last. She had found a small apartment across the alley from the café the day she started working there. Close, so she didn't need to use her beater of a car, and it saved on gas, too. The place, in truth, wasn't much, but... She didn't need that much either. It did have one thing she liked, a tiny little balcony that opened off the kitchenette, big enough for a folding chair. On rare nice days, she propped the door open and would sit out there with an aluminum folding chair, maybe wrapped in a blanket, alone with her thoughts. She was sitting there now, feet propped up on the railing, wearing a pair of jeans and a sweatshirt, watching the day end, looking down the alley and thinking 
about Stan. And then, as if conjured by her thoughts, there he was, walking down the alley. He stopped near a garbage can and threw away what looked like a bottle in a paper sack. She couldn't quite tell because the light was failing. Even at that distance from him, her hand automatically swept a wisp of hair away. He was saying something to himself, having an argument it looked like, so he didn't see her until he was almost under her balcony. She was quiet, watching him, and when he happened to glance up, they were maybe ten feet apart. He stopped. He didn't stare, but he did look at her for quite some time. Those eyes. Finally, he asked, <clears throat> Would you have any interest in going for a walk? As natural as pouring him coffee, she smiled and said, Let me get my coat. Chapter 27 Stan he liked to watch her move. At the cafe, he would watch her as best as he could without staring. She never seemed to hurry, yet seemed also to move in a way that reminded him of some sort of wild creature. She had strength and grace and economy of motion, as if she were performing a choreographed dance and not working a job. If she did look at him, it was always with a hint of humor, her eyes seeing something he didn't. Her hair was a mess of brown curls tied back, with a tendril that always seemed to have escaped somehow. When she was next to him pouring coffee at the cafe, he was tempted to reach out and touch that hair, but he never had. Just after smashing the bottle in anger, just after changing his mind again and deciding nothing was wrong with drinking one drink, just after deciding that he had enough money to buy another bottle, that he needed to buy another bottle if he was going to get any sleep that night, he looked up and saw her. She was sitting on a small balcony. It must have been her apartment. She was looking down at him with that same gentle, humorous look. He looked up at her. He opened his mouth to say something, but then closed it. What could he say? That he was a drunk? And weak? And a fool? And his life was a mess? And there was no end in sight? And that as bad as this day was, he was still glad to see her? She is beautiful. Instead, he asked her if she wanted to go for a walk. She brushed a brown curl behind her ear and said, let me get my coat. Chapter 28 Claire They wound up at the edge of town by the rails next to the abandoned AGI elevator. Four enormous gray-white towers reached up into the night sky. He stopped at one and looked at her. Are you interested in seeing the stars? The night sky was on full display already, but she shrugged and nodded. He rummaged near the base of the silo and found an aluminum ladder lying in the weeds. Still here from last fall, he said. He kicked it loose from some ice encasing one end and propped it against the cement silo. He climbed up until he reached a padlocked grill covering the hatchway. The padlock was unlocked. After he swung the hatch open, she could see another set of rungs attached to the side of the silo reaching up into the night air. Let's go. She was not particularly afraid of heights, and she could see a protective cage around the rungs, 
Nevertheless, her heart was pounding a little as they climbed the concrete cliff. The physical exertion, the height, his presence, all had their effect. Every fifty feet or so, steel hatchways could be seen cut in the side of the silo. The fourth one was gaping open, and she had to be careful to step up and over it. The smell of musty, fermented grain drifted out of the hatchway. His voice came from below. Did you ever hear about this elevator? She laughed. <laughs> Only about a thousand times. They said it was probably the most exciting thing that's happened around here in the past ten years. Is it true? She laughed again. <laughs> How should I know? It happened about four years ago before I came, but that extension agent, Al, uh, what's his name, talks like it was yesterday. He must have told me that story three times at least, even though I told him I'd heard it before. He gets to the part where the ASCS agent finds out and he starts laughing like it's the funniest thing he ever heard. One of the other waitresses that was there said that fella turned as white as a sheet and quit that day, and the elevator lost their storage contract with the government next month. Why, well, can you blame him? I'd quit too. That's a long way down. Is this the one? I'm not sure about that. One of these four, I guess. By then they had reached the top of the elevator a thirty-foot pad of circular concrete with a small fence around the edge and several empty beer cans. Some brave soul had managed to wrangle a pipe-framed hammock up to the top. Surprisingly, the wind had not blown it off yet. He pulled the hammock to the center of the circle. His manners were formal and courteous. Would you, um, would you care to join me? Oh, my, men are trouble. Men are trouble. Well, thank you for listening to episode five. One of the things I am interested in, in in stories is the jargon that comes with various industries. And I try not to do too much explaining because I think that takes you out of the of the story. But a jargon exists. It exists in radio, and I put a lot of it in there. Hopefully, you've been able to figure out what these various things mean. Cans are, uh, are headphones. Uh, POTS stands for potentiometers. That's the dials that's on the board, so you can adjust different levels, things like that. Well, uh, podcasting also has its group of and issues with uh, jargon. And when I first started uh, a website, one of the things I had to pay for was a bandwidth or, or data. And it was like this. If only one person listened to a five-minute podcast, I only had to pay for five minutes of data. But if a million people listened to that same five minutes, I would need now to pay for five million minutes. Now, uh, that's an exaggeration, but you can see how the more popular a piece of information you put on in your website was, the more potentially expensive it could become. And so then we started coming up with different industries that would help with that, and one of them is, uh, is Libsyn. Libsyn, I think, stands for Liberated Syndication, and it's a company that will help a person put out a podcast. There's a few of them, but this is the one I chose. And this is how companies like this work. 
for a given amount of money, five, seven, 10, 15, 20 dollars a month, it's not a large amount of money, they will take your data, your podcast, your, your voice, and they will store it on their site. And regardless of how many or how few people listen to that podcast, the monthly fee is the same. And they will also store it indefinitely. And if people go back and listen to past episodes, that also will be free. In other words, no additional charge. Well, it's very handy. And now you can see why places like Libsyn are very attractive as ways to kind of monitor and maintain your costs. And the other thing they do is they notify all the people who distribute podcasts that your podcast is available. So it's a little bit like this. I'm in my home and I write a letter and I put it in an envelope. That's my podcast. I then go out and put it in the mailbox and that is Libsyn. Libsyn stores it in that mailbox and no matter how many people want a letter to read, they will distribute as many letters as possible. Then they put that flag up on the mailbox and they tell people that there is a new piece of mail available. And the people who come and deliver that mail are not mailmen, they're iTunes and Spotify and all these other different uh, media providers. They circle around and then collect that mail and it's available through them. That's kind of how the system works. And when I first started podcasting, I did it under the name I Like That Story, which is maybe how you're hearing this now. And here is where the dilemma begins. I Like That Story is episodic meaning you can listen to those stories in any order. Uh, dead air is serialized. You must listen to the story in a particular order or you'll get lost. Uh, I like that story is only five minutes long and there's no language whatsoever, so it is clean. Dead air is about half an hour long and because some of my characters swear, it is called explicit. And so I was trying to have both of those shows live under the same headline of I Like That Story, and that is stopping uh, right now. If you want to listen to the rest of the show, Dead Air, you have to get it from Dead Air. So you'll go back to uh, iTunes or whatever, and instead of searching for I Like That Story, you will search for Dead Air and then that'll be me, and you can find the rest of the episodes that way. That will clean things up a little bit, and going forward, the rest of the book, Dead Air, will still be issued, but it will be on the Dead Air podcast site, also uh, hosted through Libsyn, also written by me. Okay, that's a lot of details about how the system works, but I thought maybe you'd be interested in how the process of the industry of podcasting uh, um, is handled. I will see you next time. I'm Jeff Gould. God bless. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>